Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel and Diane Duvernay are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9 and streaming at AM 1290, KZSB.com. We're repeated at 11 and on Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and in Montecito's Upper Village, and Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm, coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution. Hi, Neil. Happy Monday. So um, why is it still raining? I know. I don't know. <laughs> I have no answers. I'm kind of with you today. It's uh, It's definitely this overcast. I'm ready for it to be summer. Yeah, I thought it was summer. Not till the 21st. Oh, okay. So um, do we have a guest today? We do. We're, I'm thrilled to introduce to you my friend, a retired businessman locally, uh, John Dorden. So John, thanks so much for taking the time today. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's good to be here with you. So the, the first article we have um, is from the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled, Why Are Red States Hiring So Much Faster Than Blue States? Of the 17 fastest hiring states, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 14 voted for Trump in 2020. The top two Biden voting states, Georgia and Nevada, um, were actually purple, not even blue. And so the question is, why? And what it turns out, the article points out, is that it has nothing to do with number of people who have jobs. It has to do with churn. In the states that had the highest hiring, they also had the highest number of people leaving their jobs because there was a less unions, no support uh, 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 help. In, in that is, if you uh, had an accident, you were sick or were pregnant and you needed to leave, there was no support system. You you actually left. And also because the jobs typically in those states are uh, not particularly uh, worth uh, the kind of jobs that are paid in the blue states, what you have is nobody really wants to stick with those jobs if there's any problem. Uh, so the right to work states have more hiring, but they also have so much churn that it turns out if you adjust for that, both the blue and the red states have a, basically the same amount of hiring. Which makes sense. You know, we're still at extremely low unemployment numbers. You know, when you think about what the average unemployment number has been for the last 50 years, you're looking at 6%. Today, it, it has ticked up from 3.2 or 3.4% to 3.6% unemployment rate it's still incredibly low. And I think that that's a lot of the reason why we're seeing um, you know, a rolling recession based on industries, but not a true recession where people are losing their jobs and unemployment goes up. So um, you know, the, the strong employment numbers, you know, the jobless claims just came out, or, or not the jobless claims, but the new, um, the new job creation numbers just came out and beat expectations. It's continuing to, the economy is continuing to grow. And I think the real story is, you know, that the economy is in a lot better shape than what, what the news media will have you think. Well, thanks for the lead in because the next article from the Wall Street Journal takes up right where you left off. And that is that 
um, real gross domestic income, the other side of GDP, uh, uh, was negative. Uh, whereas GDP has been growing, a gross domestic income is declining. And the reason they this article says for that is that productivity has gone down. And the major reason these authors believe that productivity has gone down is because companies who were burnt in the last two years by not having enough employees are hoarding employers employees so that when businesses have economic uh, declines, they tend to lay off employees. But in this particular instance, where the economy is slowing, companies are hesitant to lay off employees. In fact, they're continuing to hire. And this hoarding result is distorting the numbers between GDP and uh, a gross domestic income. What's interesting, though, is what's what's been on the headlines, you know, in the over the course of the last 12 months has been, you know, technology really doing major layoffs. And so I think that leads into the concept of this rolling recession, whereas you had you know, in 2022, a technology decline, not only on the, on the stock market, but also shedding of jobs of which they hired through the pandemic. And so first quarter this year, we're seeing, you know, the banking situation, you know, with banks going out of business and people losing jobs, you know, everyone's all the all the talking heads, if you will, are talking now about uh, commercial real estate being the next shoe to drop. And so this concept of a rolling recession might be exactly what we see as opposed to a traditional recession where all of the um, enterprises come come down at once and, and we really feel a contraction in the in the GDP. Yeah, I agree with that analysis. Um, what's so interesting is if you ask the poll in during polls, political polls, they ask people what they think of the economy. And even though we have more than full employment, people are pretty negative. Um, which is really kind of uh, a paradox. Yeah, it's really... Um, the next article um, I just chose because I, I, I'm i a real fan of the person who is highlighted. It's a full page in Sunday's uh, Wall Street Journal. It's about Nicholas Taleb, who wrote Black Swan. And um, his you know theory was, uh, thesis was that um, the stock market is not like a Las Vegas game. And it doesn't the results don't follow uh, the kind of uh, normal distribution that permits statistical analysis to help you make stock market choices? So, what he says you should do is put ninety five percent of your money in uh, high quality bonds and take the little bit that's left and buy out of the money puts, because he said there's always going to be a black swan event or an event that's going to cause the market to collapse and stocks to collapse that weren't expected. So this is a whole article. It's nothing new, but it's just uh, uh, further, I think, uh, proof that uh, Taleb's theory, which most people don't buy, I happen to buy it, um, is, is, is still a very successful strategy if employed correctly. Well, and, uh, and when you look at the black, the black swan event was Silicon Valley Bank going out of business. You know, there's always tumultuousness in the market and businesses going out of business. But with the lead into that article, Neil, I thought you were going to say, you know, the the sun in their front page news article of which there's a picture of you because you put you put up during the yeah. mud, during the rain event, some reporters at your house. 
Yes. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it's one of those gossip newspapers. I was hoping it would be in the in the New York and Times. Wall Street Journal. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal. But, you know, it's better to be to be remembered um, and not to be remembered in an obituary. Be remembered when you're still alive uh, in a good way. But thank you for mentioning that. Uh, the next article is is pretty obvious, but, you know, Nicole, Jason Swig in the Wall Street Journal this Saturday, Sunday, you know, points out that, you know, with uh, uh, interest rates at 5%, you can go to a money market account and get 5% interest. Um, he just did a very simple calculation that 5% yield is about 19 times earnings. That is, if you put a dollar um, in uh, in uh at 5%, if you do the inverse of that, it's 19 times, 20 times earnings, which is exactly the current PE multiple on the S&P 500. So what he's saying is you can get a risk-free uh, at 19 times earnings, risk-free cash return, as opposed to a speculative return uh, in the stock market. That's just an interesting phenomenon that where we and are. And that today. is an interesting phenomenon. I think the one thing that you just have to keep in mind is let's say the, the market moves up, you miss out on that opportunity to make potentially more than 5%. Um, and and they, they, by the way, if I might inject, yeah. they'll point out to people that follow the market that if you miss those up days, those few during the year, really strong up days, if you miss those, your return overall has fallen tremendously. Yeah, well, five, five or six stocks accounted for almost all of the gain in the S&P this year. And... Uh, what Talib points out in Black Swan, which was written in two, in, 19, in 2006, was that in the prior 30 years, there were 10 days that accounted for the entire stock market rise. Yeah. Uh, you're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. When you're farming a vineyard, you have 180 days to bring about a certain quality for the eventual wine. With a bank like American Riviera Bank, it's really comforting to have a partner that understands the agricultural landscape. Having people that communicate quickly with us, that are able to be flexible in how we're doing our business on a day-to-day -day basis has been a real strength in what we bring to our client base. You can bank on American Riviera. We do. American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. With an update on what's happening at Center Stage Theater, here's Jim Sirianni. The Dance Network presents Series 7 2023 Go For Broke, Saturday, June 24th, three different shows. On Friday, July 7th, State Street Ballet presents their End of Summer Intensive Program presentation. Two performances at 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. Be sure to save the date for Center Stage Theater's second annual Drag Review and Cabaret, Friday and Saturday, July 14th and 15th at 7.30 p.m. This show is for ages 18 plus only. On July 22nd and 23rd, Claudia Hogue McGarry presents I Can Hear You, Damn It. This comedy is about a famous actress, Audrey, who is rushed to the hospital when she falls into a coma. What no one realizes is Audrey can hear everything people say to her while they believe she cannot hear a word. For a complete list of upcoming events at Center Stage Theater, go to centerstagetheater.org. While the growing summer heat does call for more to drink, Americans have a powerful thirst all year long. As a result, Fizzy Soft Drink Manufacturing is a $35 billion a year business through all seasons. 
the popularity of bottled water in recent decades has led to environmental concerns. Nonetheless, the 296 water bottling establishments in the nation ship over $5.6 billion worth of product annually. Profile America is a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. If you're just joining us, we have the pleasure of having John Jordan with us today a retired executive from QAD. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about John, you personally. How did you make your way from to Santa Barbara? Wow. That's, uh, rather than give you a long answer, I would divide it into two parts, actually. Um, I first came to Santa Barbara because of QAD, a software company here. I met the Lopters, Pam and Carl Lopker. I was living in the Bay Area, um, Silicon Valley. And we had uh, found out that we had some common customers. So they invited me to come down here and I came for the first many, many years, even after becoming an employee, I was just a visitor down here. So I was living elsewhere, would come down once a month, every other month, every six weeks. So that's really how I got to know Santa Barbara as a visitor. Well, So you were a pioneer of the uh, remote work before it was the in thing. <laughs> that's right. The remote work then was on the telephone and the airplane and so forth. <laughs> But then 20 years ago, um, I decided to come here because um, I found a lady here who happened to live here and we wanted to live together here. And my wife, Tracy, invited me down here to Santa Barbara. So that happened about 20 years ago, about 21 years ago, as a matter of fact, this month now that I think. So it's love that brought you to Santa Barbara. It is love that brought me to Santa Barbara. That is very true. Very nice. So let's talk a minute about um, QAD. Let's sure. talk about their business because I think it's fascinating what they do rel in in the context of the pandemic and the supply chain disruption of which the global economy has has experienced. So share with us a little bit about what QAD does and okay. what your role there was. QAD is a, a software development company. Uh, has been in existence for oh, geez now forty years. I guess it is forty years. And uh, QAD's product is primarily enterprise resource planning software, big time ERP software, we call it. It is uh, all about manufacturing and distribution uh, to large multinational companies. And so the company develops, invented, develops, and continues to, to maintain that software. So the customers are large multinational companies around the world. And in fact, QAD was a pioneer in things like B2B and in things like uh, connecting different factories, warehouses, and uh, distribution in the supply chain. So we became very, very um, expert, I would say, in the supply chain management, and the company has been booming along, thousands of customers, and we've been known to basically maintain customers over that time period. So that's essentially the business. So what, so what um, is their culpability? I'm kidding, but what, 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 what happened to the supply chain uh, during the last three years? All of the concepts of, you know, let's buy stuff only when we need it. There's, there, we have the software to find out what the customers are going to want. 
all of that sort of blew up during COVID. Is that a software issue or is that something that couldn't have been foreseen? You know, what happened with the supply chain? I think in my opinion, it's more fundamental than the, than the concepts of the supply chain software, uh, inventory management, all those things continued on. I think what happened was the disruption of, of a very sudden shutdown of economic activity. So many people stopped coming to work or they weren't allowed to come to work. Um, shippers, um, uh, transportation just, just died on the vine, essentially. So all the planning that you do through your supply chain software to pick um, provider B or source C for a product wasn't there anymore. So the backup wasn't there. So when the, the whole thing fell apart, as most of the world shut down, and I think that was more an issue of the of the pandemic. It's not the concepts. I think the supply chain concepts are going to return. Uh, they're already returning, uh, and I think that that will go on and it'll be modified a little bit with some additional backup. But the just-in-time inventory that's not going to go away. So just-in-time and, and low inventory management that's still going to be, I think, the key to uh, success in the future. So, which makes sense for for more specialized products, but something like toilet paper, for instance, you know, you can't help but to harken back to when everyone was worried that there wasn't going to be any toilet paper and you could buy more than one package at a time. Is there, what is the issue there? Is it storage? Is it, is that even something that's moved to on demand or is it something that they just know how many rolls they need to produce to fulfill whatever grocery stores? Well, that- Interesting thing there. I um, part of the the QAD package and the ERP package also was doing some predictions, some forecasting, basically. Well, when the when the public goes into a panic mode, that takes kind of all your forecasting models and kind of throws them away. So, in the issue of toilet paper, that's exactly what it is. If somebody thinks there's going to be a, a shortage, and someone goes on the radio, sorry, to tell you that there's going to be a shortage, everybody kind of gets alarmed about it. Now, uh, a different kind of a version of that, though, when I was in the early days in China, uh, one of our customers was, um, I think it was Colgate, and Colgate was introducing their factories and toothpaste into China. So China, over a billion people. So the forecasting there was, well, people that don't even know what Colgate toothpaste is, what are they ever going to buy? Are they going to buy it at all? And so those forecasting models became very, very sophisticated completely different, I think, than when you run into your toilet paper example. I think that's a panic out in the in the public. And so with the sudden shutdown of the, the factories and, you know, no, no backups available because everybody was was home and unalo- or not allowed to go to work any longer. Um, how how long does it typically take to get a factory online? Right. Because I feel like we're still dealing with some supply chain issues and here we are a, a good 12 months, if not 18 months oh, since we've all been allowed to go back to work. Well, so- uh, true. I, I'm no expert in this, but I think what you're finding now, I think the same thing I read, you guys read, um, people are finding it, diff- employers are finding it difficult to get people to accept jobs. So I think it is very difficult for a factory to come back online quickly because not only do they need the material, but they need the employees or they need the labor force. And I think everyone is finding it's it's awkward and difficult um, to find employees. And it doesn't matter what segment of the economy you're in. So you work for a technical computer company and you have a degree from MIT. Uh, were you involved in writing software or were you involved more in marketing? 
I was certainly not involved in writing software, believe me. Um, I All the software I wrote was probably back in college. Um, so I was involved in the marketing and the management, um, hiring people, setting up new offices, um, basically at, at that end of it. Now, in order to do that, when you start out in a very small company, you're, you're, you're everything. So I learned how to program in our, our progress language, which is what we used at that time. Um, but it, I wasn't the developer. I was simply doing a few reports here and there. But all of my time was really in the business side of it. But the, the, the MIT experience, though, I guess it must have helped you understanding what the product was. Uh, certainly it did. Uh, the communications part of it, um, the actual architectural, the software architecture, and the hardware architecture, how we could move into open systems, we called it in those days, the early days of this kind of software, um, and going into Unix platforms of various kinds. I understood a lot of that because I'd had a lot of computer science and such at MIT. I think everybody does. But the, uh, the side of it that helped me in the business end of it was more of my early Silicon Valley experience. And so you had mentioned that you you brought you set up offices in China. What was that like? And how would you say the the U.S. policies of of late? How have they affected Chinese American relationships and business at this point? Well, that's interesting. Interesting question, Diane. In the early days, and when I'm talking early days, I mean thirty years ago. Um, I went to Hong Kong about 1990, 1991, somewhere in there. And most of the time during the 90s, for the first 10 years over there, um, we were we handled all of Asia, QAD businesses in, in Asia. But we were specifically trying to set up and establish a, a foothold in China. And, and so we did. And in those days, what we were doing was bringing best practices and uh, Western ideas in terms of methods of business, inventory management, those kinds of things, to new Chinese factories. Or at first, it was to multinational companies who were establishing their first investments in China. And as it turns out, those became very, very successful, which is what has led us to the current problem of a rival rather than just a partner who was providing um, opportunistic uh, situations for our, um, Western companies. It has now become a rival. And I think that's been the big, big change. We were that successful, not just QAD, but other companies were that successful in the first 20 years. So from 1990 to 2010, China developed very successfully. And now we have the result. And so, you know, when I when I spoke about U.S. policy, so in the 90s, there was probably very little regulation about what you could go back and forth and, and bring to China where and there certainly were no tariffs. It was more encouraged at that point in time. Is that correct? Would that be correct or fair to absolutely. say? Absolutely. No, absolutely. We were encouraged to do as much uh, assistance with multinational companies coming into China uh, in order to make that business as streamlined and as smooth as possible. So, right, because as Americans, the American consumer benefited from that. Right, because you know, as Americans, we were looking at the demographics of China, and a billion new customers could really add or pad the bottom line, if you would. So, in fact, that was the long-term goal of a lot of the multinational companies, they came in first looking for a supply of the uh, Western economies so they could have the consumer in, in North America and in Western Europe buying Chinese products. Down the road, they looked for the Chinese market to be itself a, a middle-income, a, middle uh, a mid-market, um, and it certainly did become that. After the, I'd say this century, after the year 2000, it really became a, a big, big segment and remains today. 
that's that's the growing burgeoning part of the Chinese economy. When you say you were in Hong Kong and uh, you were looking to go to China, uh, is, is that the case? It was when you say you were in China in 1990, were you in Hong Kong and that we were that's the business center and you weren't? Basically, in, well, ma- we, went, we went to Hong Kong. I was set to establish a, an Asia Pacific presence and have a headquarters somewhere. And I chose Hong Kong because it gave us the next door opportunity to China, but also access to the rest of Southeast Asia. And that was really, really a, an important segment of it. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. What defines our community? Is it the people? The businesses? Is it the ranches, vineyards, and farms? We think it's all of those, and we're committed to helping our communities thrive. Homeowners existing and new, businesses looking to grow or bring up the next generation, our regional agriculture managing their seasons, crops, and livestock. We're American Riviera Bank, and we invest in our communities. In you. The future depends on teachers. Every day, teachers are shaping our tomorrows, starting their students on journeys that will change the course of history. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist who will make preventing pandemics their life's work, sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who will help combat climate change, and generating possibilities for a student who will be the first in their family to graduate college. It all starts with teachers who meet challenges with creativity, who reinvent education for the future, who work towards a school system that lifts up every child, regardless of race, income, or zip code, and who enable the full potential of our students, our communities, and our country. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Shape the future. Teach. Learn more and receive free support at teach.org. This year, firefighters like Fire Chief James Hall will battle wildfires around the country in hopes of containing them. But firefighters can't do it alone. A single ember that escapes from a wildfire can travel more than a mile, or it can ignite and destroy your home and community. Get fire adapted. Learn simple steps you can take now to reduce wildfire damage later at fireadapted.org. A public service message brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Learn more at fireadapted.org. Welcome back to a, to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So, so John, you, you said you, you, know, you, you brought basically the Western way of doing business to Asia was what you were charged with. Now, as we've, we've progressed since the 90s, and now we're starting to see more manufacturing move out of China and move into smaller markets like Malaysia or Vietnam, do you, do you see, why would, why would they change that? Is it sheerly just a wage issue or is it something else? Why are people moving from mainland China to other smaller uh, Southeast Asian uh, countries. 
Well, in, in my opinion, it, it all started with looking and trying to find um, cheaper, lower cost labor. Okay, that's really what got this started 40 years ago or more. And then when Deng Xiaoping uh, allowed kind of Western ideas and Western capitalism to sneak into China uh, in the late 80s, uh, following Deng in my time and during the 90s there, um, capitalists did very, very well. Uh, as that happened, and as the whole economy in China developed, they started to make more money. And so what you find is since those the last mm, 20 years, I would say, there's been a, a huge movement into other countries, typically smaller countries, or typically what I'll call poorer countries or less developed countries. And I think it's originally, it's um, trying to find cheaper labor, cheaper labor, just cheaper costs. Uh, the investments are, are lower, there's less regulations, there, there's more invitation to outside investment from the governments of those countries. And as those develop, then those also need to get to, um, I'll say a different level of manufacturing. Instead of making cheap products, they need to make more sophisticated products as with anywhere else. That means the labor prices go up and now the cheapest labor is somewhere else. And I think that's just an ongoing phenomenon and certainly during my lifetime, and I think it'll go on beyond my time. And so why do you think the push was to China as opposed to India? That's a good question. And I don't really know the answer to that. In my time over there, when I was in Hong Kong, our Asia Pacific region extended from uh, Japan and all the way down to Australia and New Zealand. Sorry about that. And I all the way over to uh, India and Pakistan. And um, I think it, for some reason, it was much easier to get into China. But now as I look back on it, I don't, I don't have a very good answer for you, Diane. We, we definitely wanted to get into um, China. The advantage in India was language. It was much, much easier. You know, having been a British colony for so long, it was a lot easier to deal with the language. Right. So it seems more like a natural fit for that first step, but I didn't know if there was some specific reason. I, it, it could be that at that time, the labor in China was actually more attractive than in India from a cost point of view. Let's talk for a minute about your military service because you are a naval, a former naval aviator. And tell us about that experience and how you see that having helped you in business all these years later. Wow, that's a, there you go. That's a, I'll try to do that in just a couple of sentences. Um, the time in the Navy was um, spectacular for me from a point of view of the, the um, gaining self-confidence, uh, trying to take on something challenging, trying to do something most people could not do or would not do, and uh, being able to accomplish that. So I, I don't know what else to say about it other than it was an exciting time. Uh, I look back on that with um, fondness, um, and it's, it certainly helped me along the way in terms of being success in, in whatever kind of success I've had in business. That That's really true. It is connected. And how long did you serve in the military? And thank you for your service. Well, I appreciate that. And it turns out I got what I people tell me is quite lucky. I signed up for a typical uh, five or six year contract with the Navy. And as most any contract with Uncle Sam, it's true for you, but not necessarily for them. So I really got out early, what people would call early. I probably was only in the uniform for three and a half to four years, three and a half years or so. It was at a time when um, they wanted to change the flow of um, material and men and people and equipment and so forth in Vietnam. And so the idea was to, in fact, stop 
building up and escalating in Vietnam and in fact turn it the other way. So an awful lot of us, naval officers and others, actually were retired out and mustered out early. Did you ever consider becoming a commercial pilot? I sure did. I thought um, that I would, I thought about that. A lot of the people I was in the service with flying, um, that's what they wanted to do. I mean, it was clear that that was immediately what they're going to do. They might have been flying a T-737, but they couldn't wait to get out and fly for United or American or Eastern Airlines then. And I thought it would be too boring, to be honest with you. And I thought flying from point A to point B and back to A and occasionally to C just wouldn't, it would just be too boring. And so I didn't do that. I didn't go down that path. Well, it's not too late. You know, there, there's a incredible shortage of pilots. <laughs> there's a shortage of pilots, but they don't really want old pilots. <laughs> yeah, isn't there for a, a They're looking for young people to do that. <laughs> exactly. So, so then from there, from once you retired from the military, what was your next step, or I should say your first step in, in business? Well, that's what brought me to California. The Navy brought me out to California, and I decided to stay. California was great. I'd never been out to California before the service, basically. And so I stayed up in the Bay Area, and I got a job with Hewlett Packard. So um, I was a, a great prize for HP in those days because they were worried still about the draft. And so here's a person who's already served. So they thought this was terrific, so I could do almost anything at HP. So I joined a small um, systems analyst, technical software group, basically at HP. And that's where I started. And that got me hooked on Silicon Valley. Interesting. And now during your, your career at QAD, you held several roles, many in finance, right? Actually, very few in finance. Uh, the roles I had in finance were spending money. Um, the uh, the first role I had, the, the reason the Lopters got interested in me was I was in Silicon Valley. So I opened up and set up the office in Silicon Valley. So the first QAD offices up there, I did. After doing that for a few years, um, we wanted to expand to Asia and to Australia. And so Carl Lopter asked me to go over to Asia Pacific. And I remember at the time, oh, he gave me three three things to, to do. He said, go over and find customers and keep them happy. Um, stay legal and send back money. So those were, those were the, the command to go over there. So I went over and chose Hong Kong to be our, our headquarters. And we set up, we became very successful in the next uh, 20 years. It's still a big operation. And uh, that's what really got us going. And I, it, was a, it was a very fun time for me, basically. It was really, really rewarding. Did you have a family then? Because moving that far to a different place must be quite an experience. Yes, it is. And the family basically did not go with me. I would come back to the States oh, every month, every six weeks, uh, every eight weeks. Um, the family joined me over there at times, but basically didn't move over there with me. It was a little bit strange to go to a place as far away as that as Hong Kong. And I have to tell you, that was uh, it was a sacrifice. And there's, uh, there's good and bad associated with that. Um, so there are things that were very good about it, things that were quite challenging about it. And it just, it's the way it has worked out. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. 
Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. It's a fact. Successful wealth management is built on strategies that focus on the big picture, take a long-term view, and establish deep and valued relationships. Hello, I'm Diane Duva, founding partner at Arlington Financial Advisors, Santa Barbara's trusted family guide, empowering you to make more informed and confident decisions. At Arlington Financial Advisors, we bring order and balance to your financial life by monitoring and managing risk so you can focus on your work, family, and enjoying the moment. We are a fully independent firm offering strategic financial planning, estate and tax planning, and private money management. Our plans and portfolios are handcrafted using a rigorous and disciplined approach, supported by a consistent yet highly personalized client experience. Our clients look to Arlington Financial Advisors as a home away from home, a comfortable place to protect what they've accomplished while they prepare for what comes next. Please visit ArlingtonFinancialAdvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805-699-7300. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. So, John, you're now um, the president of the Santa Barbara Club's Preservation Foundation. So tell us a little bit about that and also tell us about um, the historic building in which the Santa Barbara Club is housed and was founded in. Well, Diane and Neil, as you both know, the Santa Barbara Club is a private uh, club. But the club house we have, the building we have at the corner of Chapala and Figueroa, is an old, old building for Santa Barbara, built in 1904. Um, that was um, back next to the mission, probably next to the mission, is probably one of the oldest buildings in Santa Barbara that was built by and still owned by and still has the same purpose as it was originally built. Now, because it's an old building, 1904 and such, if you don't take care of it, it will fall down. And so what we have done at the club is create a Santa Barbara Club Preservation Foundation, essentially a nonprofit to take care of the building the building and the building site it is uh, since it's an old building and it was it has some unique characteristics to it and particularly for santa barbara and some of the characters who have been in and out of the club during that time it is now on the uh, national register of historic places and as such the foundation the foundation the preservation foundation has a mission to restore and preserve that building for future generations 
So I'm a, I'm a member of the club, so I care about the work that you're doing, but why should people who are not members care about preserving the club? Because it's actually a historic landmark locally, besides the National Register, we're on the Santa Barbara, in fact, Santa Barbara City started this before it became a national uh, landmark. So it's a landmark and important in terms of the city's history. The history of Santa Barbara includes um, things of architectural nature. I mean, obviously the look of the city now uh, is, is significant in that sense. So it's as an architectural gem in the city, it is protected as a landmark um, and there's an expectation on the part of the city to for us to take care of the building and to have it preserved for its um, its appearances and so forth and to keep it going that way. That's why it's the history associated with it. And so what got you um, interested in being the president of the Preservation Foundation and what what make what makes it exciting for you? Well, the, the answer to your first part of that question, probably nobody else really wanted to do it. <laughs> so so I, drew, I, maybe I drew the short straw, as you would say. Um, but it's been extremely, you know, it's been really, really good. We have been able to excite uh, a lot of the membership about history, even some people that are non-members. So we have a lot of events there that have to do with community events. Um, other organizations and particularly nonprofit organizations come in and use the club for their own venues. Um, and it's just been terrific to learn more about the history, uh, to study it more, to look at the archives we have. We have memorabilia, we have minute books, the log books of the handwritten log books, by the way, back to the early days of the boards of director meetings, those kinds of things. I've always been interested in history and this has just been a great way to get into it and to explore it, to, um, to enjoy myself, I say, doing that. And I try to share that with other people by talking about it as much as I can. So so I, I retired early and people ask me, you know, uh, what, what what is going to happen when I retire? And, you know, for men particularly, uh, their ego comes from what they did, not who they are. And, and it's not so easy. Uh, maybe it's true for both male and female. If you have a big position in a company, to the now be a retired person, how, how did you deal with that transition? Interesting question, Neil. Um, I can identify with that. Uh, you're right. Uh, long career at QAD and uh, doing the kinds of things I was doing, being very international. I lived overseas for a good good portion of my QAD career, so it was really, really an abrupt change in that sense. Um, it was the easiest thing that happened to me in terms of going to retirement was not my doing. I stopped getting paid. So people took away the money. I got no paycheck that forced me to start to look for other friends, other people. All my associates were in the high tech business. They were overseas or they were QAD people. And so I started to look for what am I going to do? It took a few years. I, I can't say it's an overnight thing. It took a few years and now I'm involved with enough things here in the city and particularly with Santa Barbara Preservation Foundation um, that, that I identify much with that now in kind of the same way I did with the QAD career back in those days. Yeah, I found, uh, and one of the reasons I left New York 25 years ago is that uh, Santa Barbara is not like New York or Los Angeles where people value you based on what you do. They look at you as you know who you are. And um, 
unfortunately, a lot of people have the same view of themselves. They they don't see themselves as a person. They see themselves as somebody who has certain power or certain skill sets. And so, you know, one of the things that we probably need more of is helping people transition to that new role in their life. That could be. I, I can tell you right now that the, the huge difference for me has been working in any kind of a nonprofit organization, whether it's a club, a museum, the Preservation Foundation, any of these kinds of things, we're all volunteers. We're all volunteers. Unlike in the corporate world or the business world where you could kind of give guidance to somebody or you had direction, somebody worked for you and you could delegate things. Now it's a matter of trying to get people to uh, agree with you. Uh, you're constantly trying to sell an idea or, or a position and getting people excited about it so that they actually help you out. It was a huge difference, and that has taken me a few years to get used to, instead of being able to just delegate things. So, no, is that I, your takeaway of retirement? You have to learn <laughs> to sell your ideas better. <laughs> that's you got it, Diane. You know, it's it's interesting when I see somebody who's about to retire. I always say, you know, you really have to prepare for it, and and they always say, no, 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 I I, I got it. Uh, I, and then as soon as they retire, the telephone stops ringing. Um, and they kind of are lost. And so um, it really requires an effort to to not get you know lost in the grass. Well, I think that that's, you know, I view as my role as people get ready to make that transition. I do always have that conversation of the psychology part of it, of what are what are you planning to fill your time with? Because I think it's an important part of this next chapter of people's lives when they transition from working either full-time or part-time, into a different role of being, you know, not just revered and having people do everything that they say. So it definitely is a transition period that psychologically you need to be prepared for when you make that, that jump into retirement. You know, all too often people cavalierly say, oh yeah, I'd love to be retired tomorrow. But really the the part of having purpose as we all through life, you know, need that purpose to continue to make progress and grow as people, it's important It's important to identify what you are going to do with all that excess time, if you will. And, and you do need to do something. <laughs> right. You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back with our final segment. Our family has been here in over 30 years. We've always been in the hospitality business. So when we're looking for a bank to finance our deal, American Riviera actually stepped up for us. They know Santa Barbara well. Right now, we don't have any plan to open another hotel, but if we do in the future, we'll be talking to American Riviera Bank for sure. You can bank on American Riviera. We do. American Riviera Bank, bank on better. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. The forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. 
Slam puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. June is National Dairy Month, observed since 1937, noting the quality and nutritional benefits of refrigerated dairy products. And Americans seize on those benefits, consuming more dairy products than any other food group except fruits and vegetables. On average, we consume 646 pounds annually, including 39 pounds of cheese, 23 pounds of ice cream and sherbet, and 154 pounds of milk. Profile America is a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank. Making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks can only dream about. So in your research for the Santa Barbara Club's Preservation Foundation, what has been the most fun fact that you've learned about Santa Barbara or the, the club in general? Well, it is really the fact that... Um... The early days, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't mean Chumash Indian days, but subsequent to that, with the first Europeans to arrive here, the the Spanish, um, the transition from those days, two hundred years ago, to through the uh, Californios um, time period, the uh, United States basically taking over California, the um, the ranching movement that was the nineteenth century here in the county and and the area. And just the whole transition, the whole movement from those days into what it is now. I think that's what's really been fascinating for me. So I've always loved the history. History has been the grabber for me. And so what other um, organizations are you involved in on the philanthropic side of things? Well, in that same regard, the history has gotten me involved heavily with the Santa Barbara Trust for Historic Preservation. So that particular group I've been involved with for a number of years now. At first, it was just a curiosity. I wanted to see what this Presidio was all about and what's Casa de la Guerra about and why we have all these Spanish names on the uh, street names and why do we have the Spanish architecture and so forth. So I got interested and intrigued with that. And I've been uh, involved with the Trust for Historic Preservation, enjoy the history part of it. Currently, in fact, I chair the uh, Historic Resources Committee there, which is a committee that looks after oh, oh, probably 15 or 20 buildings uh, in Santa Barbara, and we try to preserve, take care of those, maintain those buildings. So that's been one that's particularly uh, intrigued me. Well, what do you think of what do you think of the architecture that, in a way, the critics say is is so homogeneous? It's it doesn't provide for creative architectural work. Every you know, everyone has a you know red brick roof, and uh, it all is that same you know Spanish architecture. I, I, to be honest with you, Neil, that's a good question. I'm a firm believer in allowing modern times to also interact with the old times. So the, the Spanish style architecture is the flavor and personality of Santa Barbara, you might say. But it needs to stay pace with the current technology, with current ideas. And uh, how do you make that blend? I think it's a real challenge right now for the city of Santa Barbara, for the uh, for the people, the architects of the culture of Santa Barbara, the architects of the future of Santa Barbara. It's a real challenge. Uh, I don't have an easy answer to that, but I think you do need to blend the new with that traditional architecture. And so, with the um, with the Presidio, 
you know, what I, what I find to be fascinating is just how many buildings and how much geography it actually covers. How does the trust actually um, maintain all of that? And where does it get its funding to maintain it? Because they are very old buildings that do require quite a bit of, of money to maintain. They are, and there's a couple of sources. One of them is simply the donations and the benefactors of, uh, the, of the community who love history as well, and they love those kinds of things, the old buildings and such. Another is the trust has been very successful and, and has got some initiatives to continue this uh, effort to have those buildings um, working uh, as uh, producing some income, and that, in fact, that income will be helpful to keep them, keep them going. Also, it's part of the state park. And so it's a, it's a California state park, and that's very helpful working with Sacramento on that. That's great, because I know that my daughter recently went there for her fourth grade class, and it was yes. the first time I had been and, and had the tour, and it was really wonderful. So yeah. thank you for, for your participation in, in that nonprofit. That's such a part of Santa Barbara's history, yeah. and we all definitely um, are better be learning about it. So thank you. I and thank you, John Dorden, for being here today. Uh, thank you for your service uh, flying jets for the Navy and for all of the charitable work you do, particularly for the Santa Barbara Club. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week. Mm -hmm.